what they need is definitely the basic goods, right? Like housing. And that's what sponsors do, right? Housing, you know, get kids enrolled in school, you know, have employment facilitated, but what they want and what is so critical to their success and the success for any of us as humans, right? Is a new sense of belonging, a new community. In addition to leaving behind their homes and businesses, they've left behind their family, their friends, their social networks. Like Americans' ability to be just what we do really well, be a good neighbor, is so critical. Hello, friends and damn givers. I'm Nick LaPara, and welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. This is the show you listen to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making our world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you so much for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And most of all, thank you for joining me and us on this journey toward leaving our planet much better than we found it. Friends, we made it. It's 2023. And I could not be more excited for this year. I'll be honest, I don't do New Year's resolutions. Not anymore. I did for years. And years ago, I gave them up. I'm not going to shit on them. Resolutions, that is. They work for some people. But most people set themselves up for failure, I think. Instead, I just try to put practices and disciplines in my life in place so that I live intentionally every day, every week every month. And whether you make resolutions or whether you're just trying to do the best you can every single day, I hope your goals and resolutions include giving so many more dams in 2023. I am recording this intro from the very top of the Smoky Mountains in East Tennessee with my family. Now, not just my partner and our three kids, but all of us. And let me explain real quick, listener, what all of us means. Many of you that listen to the podcast often know a bit about my family, my extended family, but for any new listeners, here is what I mean when I say all of us. I am the second oldest of 12 children. My father and my amazing mother had 12 children, one at a time, no twins, no adoptions, straight up 12 kids. We the 12 of us at different times grew up in New York, Guatemala, and Honduras. And now we are all adults ranging from 21 years old to 41 years old. Eight of us are now married. We have partners. And between the eight of us, we have 13 children so far. We live all over the place. So once a year, all of us, all 35 of us, that's parents, kids, our kids, and partners all together, 35 of us so far, we get together in a cabin in the Smoky Mountains for four days of eating, drinking, and general merriment. Uh, the Smoky Mountains in East Tennessee are really the only place we have found that has cabins big enough for us. This one holds like 45 people, has like 20 bedrooms or something like that. It's chaotic. It's fantastic. It's all the things. So all of that to say, I am holed up in one of the bedrooms, not only recording this introduction, but I also recorded this week's podcast conversation uh, in one of the bedrooms, far away from all the noise, or you may hear some stuff, uh, some conversations, some kids screaming in the background, but I tried to get as far away as I possibly could. If you do hear some noise, 
in the intro or during the conversation, the podcast today, just ignore uh, one of the 13 kids running around. Okay, now for my guest, the very first guest of this new year, Nazanin Ash is the CEO of Welcome.us. She most recently was the Vice President of Global Policy and Advocacy at the International Rescue Committee. And before that, she served as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs at the Department of State, leading the Middle East Partnership Initiative and working to advance political and economic reform in the Middle East. Now, I could go on and on with her fascinating resume and career, but I'll let her tell you more about that during our conversation. Nazanin is a graduate of Harvard Kennedy School of Government and Bryn Mawr College, and she has been giving a damn for a very, very long time. During this conversation, we spend a bunch of our time talking about what and who Welcome.us is. And essentially, I'm going to sum it up here, and then she will go more in depth. But I, 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 this, is, this conversation was mind-blowing. It was so incredibly full of hope, and I can't wait to introduce you to Welcome.us and ask you, invite you rather, to join what they're doing. Welcome.us, in short, is a new national initiative built to inspire, mobilize, and empower Americans from all corners of the country to welcome and support those seeking refuge here. This organization is led by Nazanin and a truly incredible team and is co-chaired by President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama, President Bush and First Lady Laura Bush, President Clinton and First Lady and Secretary Hillary Clinton, and President Carter and First Lady Rosalind Carter. And what I want to point out there and what you'll see all throughout the conversation is that people from all different backgrounds coming together to provide, to build, and provide pathways for people seeking refuge here. This is truly a hopeful and phenomenal conversation. Before we get into it, a quick reminder, as always, that you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com to ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the inspiring Nazanin Ash. Let's go. This is going to be fun. I'm super excited about this. I love your podcast. I love what you do. I think it's such a great theme. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we are we are we are trying all sorts of things uh to see, you know, what people resonate with, what sticks. We're pitching two TV shows right now. Um working with a film festival to hopefully start a film festival at some point under Let's Give a Damn and obviously the podcast and merch and a book and all sorts of stuff because it's just that life is too short and there's too much to do to not give a damn. And that's what I'm just trying to help everybody be convinced of is you don't have to do everything. You don't have to be a Nazanin or a Nick or a whatever doing this full time. Just hold the door for your neighbor, you know, donate to charity, be yes. a good parent, be a good brother, be a good sister, yes. be a good aunt, uncle. Like it's, it's all of that that helps us toward the greater good. So just, yes. but it's, a, but it's a and lot you of know work. What? Makes us better too. Like makes us happier too. Right? It does. Like, it does. What's so amazing about giving a damn is what it gives back to you. You know. Yes, I'm going to leave. We're, we've already started the podcast because I like that we're starting on that note. Uh, so, Nazanin, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. 
and especially thank you for the flexibility. This is uh, we've had to we've had to uh, postpone a couple of times, COVID one time, and then we got caught in the FAA uh, crazy storm outage the other day. And so here we are. I was explaining to Nazanin before we got on the mic, listeners, that I'm sitting in the corner of one of the 14 bedrooms in this humongous cabin in the Smokies with all of my family members. So I hope that none of them run in here while we're doing this. And if they do, it is what it is. My response to that was, I'm jealous because (laughs) that sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. You were saying that you you have a big family as well Mm -hmm. via your father, who was one of 11. Uh, How is... Let's jump right into, because I, I, I usually start this way anyway. I want to get to know, before we get to Welcome.us, all the work that you've done in your incredible life, like I'm always curious at the, the beginnings, right? Because those are some of the, we get some clues as to how you came to be who you are. So go back as far as you want. And I would love for you to just share where you came from. Who were the people, places, and things that influenced you? Mm-hmm. Well, I think as with many of us, it begins with my parents who came here from Iran, actually before the Iranian revolution. They're both from um, what used to be a small town in Iran, in South Central Iran, and they came here as students. My dad came when he was 17. My mom came after she married my dad when she was 18. And what they had anticipated is that they'd um, be here, they'd be able to get a great education, and they always anticipated that they would go back to Iran and live out the rest of their lives there with the benefit of a U.S. education. Um, But their friends, their family, all of their connections um, were back in Iran. Um, But the Iranian revolution happened in the last year of my dad's PhD program, and they had me. And out of great concern for what my future might be, and with the warnings of their parents and family back home about the instabilities of Iran after the revolution, um, the violence, the lack of rule of law, the indiscriminate um, uh, actions that the regime was taking against um, individuals uh, in the country. You know, their parents really advised them that it wasn't the right time to return. And my parents were um, so lucky to have um, a safe place to be and a safe place to raise me. And, you know, by the time things uh, settled down in Iran, it just, um, it was really out of concern for my future that they stayed. Um, And I think so much about the fact that it was um, a life that they never anticipated. You know, my mom didn't see her family for eight years. Oh, wow. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, Uh, It was a real um, rending from family and friends, and again, a life they never anticipated, um, but they did it for the opportunities it provided um, for me. And it's extraordinary to reflect on, you know, uh, what my life trajectory might have been otherwise. And that's a long way of coming to the why of, you know, of doing this, you know, I think from my own experience There are so many things that can get in the way of people achieving their human potential, you know, their race, their their ethnicity, their gender, and most significantly, oddly, their geography, just where you were born. Um, And so it's been really important to me throughout my professional choices uh, to remove those barriers to people achieving their human potential. 
That's really beautiful. Where in, tell me a little bit about where you grew up in Kansas. Um, was it an inviting place for refugees, for immigrants? Did, did you, what was sort of, yeah, how did people perceive, you know, you, a brown skinned girl, daughter of refugees? How did, yeah, how was that upbringing? Because some people I've talked, I've talked to many people that are uh, immigrants, refugees on this show over the past several years. And some had incredible experiences, didn't, didn't experience discrimination of any kind. And then others yeah. have experienced it all throughout their lives. So what yeah. was your experience and how did that shape you? Yeah, it's a super interesting question because I'd say that um, my experience was mixed, right? So I was I was born in Kansas. My dad was a student at the University of Kansas. Um, when he uh, graduated from undergrad, if you can believe it, I was I was born, um, you know, my dad's junior year in college. You wow. know, I was I was unanticipated. Let's say that. <laughs> so, um, so. Um, uh, when my dad finished his undergraduate degree, um, he moved, we moved to Minnesota. He did his graduate um, uh, program at the University of Minnesota. And then he taught um, computer science for the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. So um, we were as, you know, born in Kansas. And then um, up until I was 10 and a half, we lived in Minnesota and Wisconsin. And then um, when I was 10 and a half, we moved to California. And that itself is like, that tells you that's a, that's a critical part of this journey. Um, I will say, you know, um, uh, everywhere my, um, my, my parents um, lived, we found welcoming communities and I'll come back to that. And at the same time, it, we, I lived in the Midwest as, you know, often the only Iranian during the hostage crisis years. Uh, so it, it was, it was not easy and I don't really blame, um, uh, I don't really blame uh, any individual for the, you know, for the perspective they had. I mean, anytime you turned on the news, you know, and those, um, in those years and, you know, from 1979 through, you know, the early eighties, you were going to see, you know, terrifying demonstrations against the United States and Iran and, you know, Americans who were held hostage there. So, you know, the perspective of Americans is very much, you know, shaped by what they were seeing on the nightly news. But again, you know, the perspective of the American communities with whom my family was engaged was shaped by their experience with us. And I think often, um, you know, there's this beautiful story I love to reflect on, which is, you know, my dad's um, advisors in graduate school, um, you know, really, first of all, really took a chance on him, right? When he was applying for graduate school, he had a wife and a baby daughter and had had to work two jobs and go to school full time in order to support his family while he was finishing his degree. And so, you know, he'd done well in, you know, many of his classes, but there were certainly some classes where he said, I just need to take a pass on that one and just get a passing grade. Um, and his um, his advisors in graduate school really saw that. And, you know, they said, you know, we can see this bumpy road, but we can also see your talent and we know what you've been through. And so, you know, gave him an opportunity. And it was those same advisors, many of whom were Jewish, who, you know, would host my parents for dinner, you know, would have them over for Shabbat. 
And um, like one of the things I find really precious is, you know, my parents are Muslim. So they grew up, you know, in, you know, non, you know, they didn't drink alcohol growing up. They weren't sort of particularly familiar. Um, and so I always, I, what I think is very sweet is my dad thought, you know, Manischewitz was a drinking wine for, you know, a very long time, you know? So, um, and it was because of, you know, beautiful dinners and the homes of his advisors and the families who made us feel welcome um, wherever, wherever we went. Um, and then when we moved to California, when I was 10 and a half, we moved to Southern California, which um, for uh, listeners to the podcast who may not know is frequently um, endearingly referred to as Tarantulas. So <laughs> it's like, there are so many Iranians. Um, I, the last time I looked at these stats, I think LA hosts um, four times the number of Iranians as the rest of the diaspora combined. Wow. It's amazing. And so suddenly it was a totally different community. But I will say, even in that community, me and my parents stood out, right? Like we weren't from Tehran. My parents, like I said, were from what used to be a small town. You know, they had come before the revolution and had stayed, you know, had found the opportunity to stay here, to find safety here because of the revolution. Um, uh, but they were very different from, you know, the, um, uh, the Iranians who fled post-revolution in many ways, who were largely characterized by, you know, they were religiously persecuted, so they were Jewish or they were Baha'i or they had been among the elites, you know, in the Shah's regime. So it's a really different, uh, it was a really different community still, um, but amazing to see, you know, the, the contrast of the experience I'd had growing up and the warmth that we had found in so many of those communities in the Midwest. And then also the incredible diversity of a community like Los Angeles. And it's the sort of thing that makes you really proud to be an American, right? Like we are so many things, you know, that line, you know, that E pluribus human line, you know, yeah. like the out of many one, like I can never, I can never say that without choking up. Like it is such, it is such an extraordinary statement on who we are as a country. And it's something that has been just a wild privilege to experience through the lens of my family's history. That's such an extraordinary journey. It actually mirrors a lot of mine in that, um, well, I have so many things to say. I'll, I'll just recap a couple of them from what you just shared about your family moving all over the place. I am the son, and I know why I said son of an immigrant earlier, because I was thinking about your story and my story. I am the son of an immigrant. I'm the son of a refugee. My dad left uh, Guatemala in the first few years of a 40 year civil war. And we actually, we moved back later on. So I grew up in upstate New York for a few years. And then we traveled around the country, uh, for a bit and then for two years. And then we moved to Guatemala when I was 10. And so we moved back. So he left during the first few years of that civil war. We moved there in the last three years of that civil war. So we experienced three years of it. And actually the several years after the war was over, as it happens many times, is there was actually more violence. Yes. You know, this, this civil war was between the, you know, the guerrillas and the government. And it was, yes, it was very bloody and it lasted several decades. Yes. But then the problem you had is you had hundreds, tens of thousands of people that had all their lives had been fighting and in war. Yes. And now they're, they're being asked to live, come into these towns, come into the cities and live peaceful existences. And they mm -hmm. try to get jobs, but- Guatemala is a very poor country. Right. And so, you know, there weren't many jobs for all these people. And so violence would then 
violence wasn't happening out in the you know, in the jungles and out in the countryside, it was happening in our cities now. Yeah. You know, we saw, you know, I've, I've seen people get murdered right in front of me. Uh, oh. there, there were kidnapping attempts on our family. Um, kind of a crazy upbringing, which I very much love. I, I really, I don't regret any part of my upbringing, but it kind of brings me to um, one of the, I, I have a, because I grew up outside the U.S., during very pivotal, very, very monumental years, 10 to 20. I mean, just puberty and adolescence and all the feelings and all the growth and all that stuff. So then I come back into the U.S. at 20 and I haven't quite up until I would say several, you know, a couple years into starting Let's Give a Damn, the last couple years, I spent 20 to 35 or 36 really despising so much of what I saw around me in America, yeah. um, the, 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 the excessiveness of who we are and what we do, the lack of gratitude for what we have. Um, I could, and, that, and then as I grew older and became more of an activist and, you know, it, that became a central part of my life, I was just upset at how many things we were doing wrong that we knew were wrong mm -hmm. that we could have fixed. These are things mm -hmm. that we can fix. We can, you know, this, we can, we can fix so much more than we're doing with our refugee crisis, with our immigrant crisis, mm -hmm. in the prisons, with the police. Like, yes. name your issue. Homelessness, yes. we could eradicate it next week. Yes. Uh, no child should go, go to bed hungry in this country. And so we have all these problems in this country. And But what I've been realizing these last couple of years, and it's really helped me become, now I still have my moments where I just go off, uh, and, it's not, and it's not pretty, but I've had more moments where... I have just appreciated what this very young country, right? All things considered, we're a couple hundred years old. We are very young still. We so I have th I have three children that are eight, nine. Uh, they're nine, ten, and eleven. No, eight, nine, and eleven right now. So they're young, but they're in that stage, right? Where my my eleven year old's about to go into middle school, and she's terrified. So I have they're experiencing many changes. Well, that's going to happen in a country as well. You're going to have, and, and, and on top of its adolescent stage, we are also a country that, again, for all of its many, 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 many faults, has become one of the very few melting pots in yes. the world. Yes. Most other countries, yes. you know, you go to China, it is primarily Chinese people that live there with some others. You go to Iran, you go to all these other places, and it is There's mostly so that, mm -hmm. that people group mm -hmm. that lives there still with a few outliers. Here, mm -hmm. and I live in New York City. You live in DC, right? Or yeah. Mm -hmm. So we live in cities where everybody is everybody. there. And when you get that many people from that many countries representing that many ideas uh, into the political and societal sphere, of course, you, it's yeah. going to be a shit show most of the time. You know what I was going to say? I was going to say you get magic. <laughs> so funny. It is that, but you know what it is? It is, it can be a shit show a lot of the time, but you know what that is? It's the struggle. It's yeah. the necessary struggle. I I would say you get magic. Yeah. Because I love that. It's where you can have that struggle. We were the first country to define a constitution that gave you human rights and human dignity on the basis of your personhood on the basis of being human, not on the basis of your citizenship. Yeah. 
And we are so imperfect. Like I hear, I mean, I to, I'm nodding my head. We are so imperfect and we can do so much more good and we can be so much better. But what I think is kind of amazing is that we are a country of strivers, mm-hmm. right? We are a country of strivers and it is often the communities that are most impacted by the inequities in our society, that is often the communities that are most able to say, you said that in your constitution, but you are not living it, that have made us better, right? I'm thinking about the civil rights movement. I'm thinking about yep. the, not just the civil rights movement, the long time struggle of black Americans, you know, and how they have helped at every stage nudge us closer to our true selves. You know, but one of the things that we experience at Welcome.us, which is like, which was its like founding principle is that Americans get in it. They solve problems, right? Tocqueville said this about us, that the strength of our democracy was in the willingness of our communities to roll their sleeves up and solve problems without, you know, like not relying on government to solve it. And that's so much of what we're seeing in the displacement and, um, you know, the sort of, it's like a global crisis of displacement and governments and our national politics are often just tied up in knots for how to deal with it. But what's been extraordinary about what we've seen at Welcome.us is everyday Americans, our communities are totally ready to put their hands up to help. Their desire to welcome completely belies what we perceive in the toxicity of our national politics. So all those things are true. We have all these challenges to solve, and there are so many Americans who are ready to roll up their sleeves and solve them. And, you know, it is, it is that, it is that willingness of Americans to make that vision of who we're supposed to be as a country real. And the fact that they struggle with it, that I think is, really extraordinary. Yeah, I I That's could, I find pride. <laughs> I could not agree more that we're act, there's actual trying going on. There's actual as you put yeah, it striving yeah. going on. And yeah. I love I, I don't know that anyone, maybe someone has. I seem to remember a conversation where this came up, but maybe not. What I love that you just brought up maybe for the first time on this show cuz I, I bring up the constitution f- f- fairly often and usually when I bring it up, I try to keep it short and sweet, but it's 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 when I'm talking about how much it falls short. Yes. And it, and it does. I mean, this document that we base almost everything yes. we do on and that is yes. referred to every single day in the halls of Congress, in the House, yes. in the in the White House, yes. didn't- It falls short. It doesn't name you. There are no women in the Constitution. There is never a she or a her in there. Uh, black people were not full entire humans, right? Not, but what you just pointed out is a really great, thought that gives me more confidence in this document in that we at least have this very explicit document that has been amended a couple dozen times and we can see the progress that we've made. And I hope and wish for more amendments in the future because some of our amendments, in my opinion, need to be amended again. We need to update for 2023. There's a lot more that we know. These things these amendments were written when you could fire one bullet and it took several minutes to reload. 
this these amendments were written when we didn't have the internet, we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have all of these yeah. new tools yeah. to either bring love into the world or to sow discord or to bring terrorism, right? Like we just have a different playing field now. But yeah. I just love that idea that, okay, we have this document, it's imperfect, but it's also beautiful. And we can track the progress throughout, again, our very short relative to the rest of the world, yeah. our very short history. Yes. I hear this so much from, um, you know, I, so one, I mean, I grew up at my father's knee, right? Like I have a deep sense of, you know, um, of what America has wrought in the world in many countries, right? Like my yeah. dad will tell the story of, you know, the, you know, the coup in Iran that displaced Mossadegh, you know, a democratically elected leader and, you know, the roots of that in the Iranian revolution, right? Like the Cold War and U.S. interventionism that in many ways we recognize today, you know, didn't privilege democracy, you know, made, um, you know, unholy deals with autocratic leaders, you know, in a Cold War struggle that ultimately um, uh, resulted in um, a real denial of human rights around the world. I know that side of the story. But the argument, and I and I see it, right? We don't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't deny these histories. We should learn from them. But my, you know, the argument I get into with my dad is, but this is also the country that made me possible, that made you possible, and all the contributions that you've made. Name me another country where you know the daughter of immigrants. Um, you know, from a country with whom the U.S. does not have diplomatic relations and has a pretty contentious relationship, can be a deputy, you know, you know, can be a um, a deputy assistant secretary of state, you know, <laughs> like in one generation, you know, or can lead an NGO, right? In one generation, right? Can um, get a master's degree at a you know at an elite school. Right, like who, name me another country where that can happen, and where um, the you know I hear this too from other you know more recent newcomers. I was having a conversation recently with a colleague of mine who was among the Afghans um, who were evacuated um, in August of 2021, um, and you know she was saying. Um, you know, she just said out loud, like, it's just, it's not perfect. It's not perfect at all. It's really hard. But what happens in the United States is you can, you can. That's There's beautiful. There's a pathway. Yeah, that's beautiful. You're right. You're right. And I've, I'm sure you've done a bunch of global travel. I have as well. I spent time in, you know, over 30 countries and hopefully many more to come. And I love traveling. It's literally my favorite thing. There's nothing like getting out of this country and visiting somewhere new and meeting new people. But there is, there, there's, a, here, here's, here's what I look at in, in, in light of what we're talking about, refugees and immigrants and so on and so forth. Even if I, on the days when I fail to find enough good to fight for, if I just think about all of the people coming here, and again, they, they might be coming on false pretenses and they might be coming and they might not, they're probably not going to experience the American dream they saw on TV, which prompted their journey here, right? This is, this is a, this is a, still a hard place to live and to make it, right? 
but it's possible, as you just said. That, that I've been to some amazing countries that offer things that this country should offer. We should have universal health care. We should have paid maternity leave. We should have all these things, right? But it's, it's more possible. It's only for the few. Yeah. It's yeah. Few. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a lot to be excited about as we continue to, and I, I want to talk as we move, as we move in this conversation toward talking about your incredible work at welcome.us, I want to spend a couple minutes on how you got there, right? We talked about yeah. your family, but you've had just an, I, I won't even begin to name all the things you've done, uh, you know, from, you know, in the early 2000s to, to present, you've, you've, you've held some pretty phenomenal roles, as you said, in one generation from your father coming here, from your, your mother coming here, you are now accomplishing all of this. I find it fascinating. As I looked through all of the things that you've done, it's like, holy crap, you've done a lot of things. You've worked for a lot of incredible people and organizations leading you to your now current role at, as CEO of welcome.us. Would you spend a couple minutes just walking us through, spend as little or as much time on your journey here, <laughs> but I would just love for you to explain this. I think it makes, it makes more sense when we get to welcome.us. Yes. The things you've done in the past. So spend a couple minutes, if you don't mind sharing <laughs> about here. how you've gotten here. You're, you're being, you're being really kind. Um, so I'll, I'll make this short and I won't, um, bore your listeners. You know, again, this sort of, you know, this idea of, um, wanting to lift the barriers to achieving human potential. Uh, so I actually started out in domestic poverty policy. I wanted to work, um, on, you know, on, on child protection. I wanted to, I, you know, there's, there is so much inequity in our society. So my very first job was at a runaway and homeless youth shelter, um, uh, and then that sort of started a path where I re was really experimenting with where it was that I could have the most impact, right? So I started out in direct service work. Uh, I, um, tried my hand at, you know, I, I, um, interned and gathered a lot of experiences in my very early years looking at, okay, what it would be like to, um, to do, um, legal advocacy, because uh, there are organizations that do tremendous work um, and achieve tremendous outcomes at scale because they're getting it through um, changes in the law or what it might be like to do legislative advocacy um, or what it's like to work, um, you know, on policy development in a, you know, in a, in a think tank. Um, I made the switch to international development in um, grad school in part because of what you were talking about, Nick, like I was going through sort of a crisis of confidence about the United States and the fact that we have all these, um, you know, domestic challenges that we have the resources and the technical expertise to solve. And it's really sort of politics that gets in the way. Um, and, um, and is really compelled um, by so much of what was happening globally at a time when there's a real recognition that addressing issues of um, poverty aren't about, um, you know, charity and transferring goods and services. It's about transforming people's position in life and um, empowering them to have their human rights recognized. And so um, it was a real turn to um, working on political and economic development globally. Um, and, uh, and then that led me to uh, 
it's a funny story, but I was working on, um, I was working on HIV AIDS issues, um, for an NGO in Kenya. And interestingly, I wasn't working on it from a clinical perspective. It was, I was working on it from a advocacy perspective. You know, how do we, you, you've all, you know, it was deeply impacting Kenyan communities, communities all over sub-Saharan Africa, but those voices were among the least that were represented in the global advocacy around AIDS. And so um, I was doing work um, with an, uh, an NGO on the ground there to, to you know, to, you know, to um, help elevate those voices. And I was in Kenya when um, George W. Bush um, did his State of the Union announcing the launch of PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. And I, I mean, I think I quite literally, you know, fell off the couch because there was so much I'd been thinking about. Like, what do I wish the global community would do about this disease that was ravaging entire generations in low-income countries? And then he made the speech and I was like, okay, well, I want to go work on that. So <laughs> I took a job in the U.S. government that was supposed to be just a year to help work on the startup of PEPFAR, and it ultimately led to um, a decade in the U.S. government across the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development, working on issues um, that were about, um, you know, the U.S. has such extraordinary tools for doing good in the world, but they don't often work in the best way. They're not often like responsive to the right problems. They don't sufficiently empower and elevate the communities that are most affected and have the best solutions for them. So, you know, I worked on various um, aid reform and political and economic reform efforts in government. Uh, and then um, left to go work for the International Rescue Committee and was, um, you know, it was another opportunity, again, this journey of where can I have the most impact? And I promise not to go on and on about this and bore your listeners, but here we are. They're not bored. <laughs> go for it. Yeah, you know, but that was really, I mean, um, that was real insight into, you know, the challenge of global displacement, the fact that it's ever growing, that it's a trend that's going to stay with us. You know, we're at 100 million globally displaced now. That's doubled over the last decade. It's a function of climate and conflict and the interplay between the two. And nobody, our international systems are not solving these root causes. They are really struggling to, you know, come to real resolution around how we alter climate trajectories, how we alter conflict trajectories, especially when so many of them, like you experienced in Guatemala, are civil wars for which we don't have the international tools to solve them. But it's human beings that are caught in that mix. It's human beings who are caught in the consequences of unmitigated climate change and unmitigated conflict. And at the same time, wealthy nations who have the greatest tools available to them for being able to solve these challenges are by and large the ones running away, right? So 80% of the world's refugees are hosted in low and middle income countries. If you're you know, watching the news, you would think that it's countries like the United States that are being overrun with refugees. It's not. It's low and middle income countries, often those neighboring the countries in crisis that are generously 
you know, allowing people to find refuge and safety there. But when they're finding refuge and safety there, they're often in refugee camps for years. They're living their lives in limbo. They can't work regularly. They struggle to be able to send their school, their kids to school consistently. Um, and it's a real, it's just, a, um, it's an arresting of human development, right? And we have to find productive solutions for displacement, not only because there's so much human potential that's being lost, but because the tensions around displacement, I mean, think about the politics around our own U.S. border, are really, they're both tearing apart our democracies and they're undermining, you know, exactly what we were talking about, Nick, like the commitment to our constitution, the commitment to human rights and human dignity, the commitment to being a place of refuge, the commitment to the values and the ideals that have made our country what it is. So that's what landed me at welcome because it was going to, you know, it was, it was taking a run at solving that big challenge and doing it in a really different way, you know, which was bringing our communities into the work, like knowing that, you know, whatever might be happening at the level of our toxic policy politics, American communities overwhelmingly believe we should be a place of refuge. They love that idea of America and they want us to be that America. It's super clear that you give so many dams. And I love- <laughs> I give a lot of dams. You give a lot of dams. And I love- So do a lot of Americans. <laughs> they do. They do. I love what you just brought up, Nazanin, I did, I, where you talked about in, the, in, this, in this struggle to figure out how to welcome and how to accommodate and how to take care of all these displaced. I mean, just the number you just gave me just gave me like shivers, 100 yeah. million. That's- 100 million. That, and 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 I love that you just brought up not just because sometimes I think sometimes we lose focus about why why are we doing this we need to take care of you know our own but if you look at even in our in our country alone if you look at the amount of immigrants and refugees that are that have solved diseases that have started incredible companies oh. that have served right like there's so Let's many talk about this right we could we could spend hours just yeah. talking about that and so f forget let's go one step beyond. We should take care of them just because they are fellow humans, right? Only that, whether they ever serve a greater purpose in the world or not, they are our fellow siblings and we need to take care of them. But beyond that, we are losing so much potential. Yes. There's so many talented doctors and scientists and musicians <laughs> and athletes yeah. and go, you just, just, we could keep going forever naming these people that we're, lo we're losing out by not knowing them. We're losing out by not letting them go, bringing them and letting them go to our colleges and our universities and yes. to start to start our companies. Like that's such an incredible, that to me even heightens more. Again, we should take care of them regardless, but that is, gives us all the more reason to figure out how to take care of these people here in the, this country and in other countries that have more than, than the displaced yeah. people have, because we're all just losing out by not knowing them. Yes. Do you want to hear something crazy? I do. So, um, you know, the Afghan evacuees who came in August and September of 2021, right? We all know exactly the circumstances under which they arrived, right? Experiencing trauma, literally only being able to come with what they could carry on the plane, um, being on the safe havens, the military bases, sometimes for months while um, the U.S. government finished, you know, processing and, and um and um, identifying the communities where they could be permanently resettled to rebuild their lives. 
even under all of those circumstances, do you know what that population of Afghans is estimated to contribute to our economy just in the first year of being in the United States? 1.4 billion. Even under all those circumstances, and I have to give props to the International Rescue Committee, my old employer, those are the folks, you know, they did their research on this. But across the board, refugees have entrepreneurship rates that are 50% greater than Native Americans. They are job creators, right? The Department of Health and Human Services did a study um, on the economic contributions and found that refugees had contributed 63 billion more in contributions to our economy over the last decade than they had received in public benefits. Everywhere, when we productively, when we productively allow immigrants, it is a win to make their rebuild and make their lives here. It's a win-win for everyone, everywhere, all the time. Poland, in the um, their GDP increased by eight and a half percent in the first quarter when they were receiving nearly four million Ukrainian refugees. Incredible. Right? These are people, you know, again, like they're strivers. They're looking, they're, they're, you know, everything's been taken away from them through no fault of their own. And still like they're, they're, they want to, you know, they want to achieve their human potential. They want their children to have opportunity. They seize the, you know, they seize the opportunity to live in safety, to live in a place where possibility can be made real. We benefit every single time. And then, yeah, did you see like Hank Paulson and um, Timothy Geithner, right? Repu- Republican Democratic yep. Treasury Secretaries. I mean, they just did a report last week that the U.S. needs population increases in order to maintain our productivity. That's the case in the U.S. It's the case in the U.K. It's the case in Japan. Like all wealthy nations are experiencing crises in their economies as their populations age and their workforces diminish. You know, there are only win-wins here and the politics get in the way. I'm glad you ended it there. So that's exactly where I was going to go. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because I do want to spend the last you know chunk of our time talking about how Welcome.us developed and what you're doing okay. and how people can join in. But mm-hmm. since you went there, how do we do this? In your, in your, uh, you know, your professional opinion and your, I mean, this is what you do for a living. You observe these conversations, you lead the conversations, you have the conversations. So the hard part for me is I believe all that. Even as I look at, even look at my own family, the businesses that my siblings have started, the projects that we've been involved in, I would not, not that let's give a damn is this huge thing, but I would not have started this organization had my father not come, you know, like I wouldn't even be, I wouldn't be a thing if my father not come here and met my mom and all that. So we just, our one family unit has, I think, contributed so much good to this country, right? And we're one family unit. Uh, But the, there's so many, not facts, opinions being thrown around that are backed by, you know, if you don't agree with this, that's the, please push back on this. But I think a lot of the the negative conversations and talking points and stereotypes are coming from the right. And it's harmful because, and I'm not saying they don't come from the left as well, but it is primarily I see them coming from the right, both common everyday citizens that are being fed talking points by their politicians. And it's become so hard 
to correctly, to accurately, to factually talk about this conversation yeah. because there's so much hatred and animosity and xenophobia and racism happening around this conversation. And it's usually, and again, I don't want to, I'm just pointing out what I have observed in my work is that so many of the times uh, Americans that don't contribute all that much to the building of companies and the building of our economy, the building of businesses, they are the ones that hate this refugee and immigrant uh, crisis the most, and are in our least have a have a the, uh, have the least vested interest in figuring it out. And so, here's what I'm getting at: how how do we how do we have better conversations? How do people in the middle? I'm I'm a leftist like through and through, but how do leftists have conversations with centrists and moderates and the right? And and how can we engage people that don't that I believe are not speaking? from a factual foundation about this, because I totally agree. And I also do believe that the overwhelming, once you have the conversations, once I've had the conversations with people in the middle and on the right, that I think are not speaking factually about actually what's happening, we usually come to, we may not come to full agreement, but we can, we, so it's, it's about having conversations, right? A lot of it, it's about getting off of Twitter, stop being a keyboard warrior and actually get with your neighbor and say, let's talk about this. Where where are you coming from on this topic? And why do you feel this way toward refugees and immigrants? Because mm -hmm. that to me is one of the bigger problems we have at hand is just the, the lobbying of outright lies or willful ignorance or uh, whatever from one side to the other about this issue. And in the balance, right in the middle, caught in the middle of all this are people that have had their homes and their lands and their families taken away from them, not of their own will. Mm -hmm. uh, and they just want a place to live. They just want a place to prosper, right? But they're being caught in the middle of this mostly political war yes. that's happening. Yes. And what I think is most fascinating about it, Nick, is that it doesn't actually describe 80% of Americans, mm -hmm. right? So our politics on this are being waged at the extremes on both the right and left and, um, and, uh, and political actors on both the right and left are pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into how Americans understand um, immigration and how Americans understand displacement, global displacement, and the need of populations for safety. And so, again, I don't blame the average citizen for the point of view they might have based on what they're reading and seeing in their general media. People are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to shape their view, right? But here's what I think is so inspiring. And this is where we all need to plant our flag. In the six months, well, first, let me, let me start in a different place. When we launched Welcome.us, it was because our government was facing an extraordinary crisis, right? They had to address the challenge of resettling over 80,000 Afghans in a matter of weeks on a government refugee resettlement system that in the previous year had welcomed just over 11,000 refugees. So our government systems were you know, really going to be overwhelmed. But, you know, um, my co-founders, John Bridgeland, who was the domestic policy advisor with the Bush administration, and Cecilia Munoz, who was the domestic policy advisor for the Obama administration, you know, they knew that this was a challenge that could be solved if we went to the American people and asked them to help. 
And the extraordinary thing that happened next is we couldn't even keep up with it. We couldn't even keep up with it. And it was Americans from every corner, right? It was Rotary Clubs and it was Lions Clubs and it was Samaritan's Purse and it was hundreds of community-based organizations, many of them veteran-led or refugee-led and diaspora-led or faith-led. You know, we um, we funded through the Welcome Fund. We've now funded almost 200 organizations, community-based organizations that are doing welcoming work in their communities. They're not the traditional government, you know, um, resettlement agents receiving funding. They do heroic work. Um, we wanted to also support and enable all the communities who wanted to help. So of our nearly 200 grantees, 60% of them are veteran-led, faith-led, or diaspora-led. You know, these are Americans who want to step up and do this work. You know, the, and I'll give you the most extraordinary statistic of all, you know, sort of recognizing the way in which Americans wanted to contribute when the, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine six months after the U.S. had had to, you know, address this challenge of resettling 80,000 Afghans, you know, they had a government system that was already overwhelmed, you know, you know, six months later, you, the Ukraine crisis hits. And so learning the lessons of how much Americans wanted to help, they designed, the U.S. government designed an entirely private sponsorship program. So Ukrainians could come here if they had the support of a private sponsor in the United States, right? And do you know what happened next? I can guess, but go for it. In one month, Americans signed up to sponsor more refugees than the whole of the U.S. government had admitted in the last three fiscal years combined. Incredible. Incredible. So Americans want to do this work. And what we're doing at Welcome is we're like, you know what? The politics are going to be what they may. We are not engaging in the politics. Do you want to be a lifeline to someone who needs safety? We can help you find out how. We can help you do that. We know that you want to make a contribution in your community. We know that Americans want to serve. Back to what giving a damn does for us when we give it, right? Like we often, do, we're like, be a lifeline to safety. And you know what? You're going to change a life, including your own. And we know that, you know, we know that when Americans are able, you know, to express their compassion and generosity and do that in direct participation with newcomers, what are we going to learn about each other? How transformative is that experience, both for the newcomer who's able to rebuild their lives in safety and for the communities that are so lucky to receive them, right? We hear that from sponsors all the time. It's actually, I mean, one of my favorite parts of this job is not only what we hear from refugees and newcomers who are able to you know, find safety, it's what we hear from sponsors, what we hear from sponsors about how their lives have been transformed and what it's meant to them to, um, to uh, live this meaningful life. You know, live this meaningful life. Um, I remember um, I was uh, listening to sponsors who had welcomed an Afghan family and it was an older couple and they were talking about 
what extraordinary joy they found because they were watching um, the children that were part of this Afghan family play on the play sets that their kids used to play on. You know, we have a we have a sponsor that we all um, uh, um, refer to as the uh, we all we all refer to him as the decent grandpa because when he um, did his profile in Welcome Connect, which for your listeners is where you can go and learn how to be a sponsor, um, when he did his profile in Welcome Connect, um, he talked about the fact that you know he's retired, his kids live close by but he's got this big house and he misses the sound of like kids running around in the house. You know, he volunteers in his community. He's the, you know, he's the Santa at Christmas time for, you know, the Salvation Army. He helps out with veteran groups. But what he wrote was, you know, I'd love to help support a family. Maybe they'll have small kids who could run around with the dogs. Maybe the parents would let me spoil the kids a little because I make a pretty decent grandpa. Come on. Amazing. That's who we are. This is incredible. I, I I agree with you. I really do. And as I get older and the, as the days and weeks and months go by and I do this work more and I have more conversations, I keep getting my my worst the worst part of me keeps getting proved wrong. And I think part of it, honestly, as you were talking a few minutes ago, Americans will prove you wrong on the right side every time. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm seeing that, and and I, and I love that. What, what, what I think could and should happen more, because again, we do spend so much time on social media. You know, we, we just watched we just watched this really tense week happen where for four days the the GOP couldn't elect their House Speaker, and like, and we're so invested in that, right? Yeah. But why? But why? why? That's not where problems are being solved. What would happen? And I know half, honestly, I'm convinced of this because I see I see Jim Jordan tweeting and I see Matt Gaze tweeting and I see on the left, I'm convinced that half the shit they do is to get a rise out of us and is to continue to drum up this. So what if we, we are told, what are we told? To starve the trolls online, right? So don't answer them, don't respond, right? What if we did that to politicians too? What if we just ignored them? Let them go do their thing. You go do your job. And we're going to go do ours because I don't have a say. I do around election time. We have a say in our politics. But beyond that, they just do whatever they want. Right. So what if we starved them from the attention that so many of them want, the division they are actively trying to stir up? What if we just blocked them all on Twitter and Instagram and just focused on where's the next decent grandpa? Where's the next decent grandma? The next decent aunt? The next decent uncle? The next decent neighbor? Because like you say... Americans will surprise you every time. And there, there are many more decent people out there that want to do the right thing, that may not understand the problem of displacement and refugees and immigrants entirely, but they are more than willing to become a sponsor, as you saw in the numbers, mm -hmm. more than willing to become a sponsor and say, yeah, I'll do my part. And mm -hmm. in one, in uh, you say one month, one you, got, month? You, you got more sponsors than three fiscal years of the government trying to do their thing. And so- this is just really hopeful. I'll be honest. This conversation is just reminding me of, yeah, we've we've got a lot of work to do, and I want to make it less about politics and more about the everyday people in yeah. in, in Kansas, in Ohio, in Wisconsin, in Arizona. Yes, there's some crazy stuff happening politically there, but so much of that is out of our control. 
How about we, we focus in more- Alabama and Kansas City, Missouri, and you know North Carolina, you know, and Hartsville, South Carolina. We have all you know. It's a community of eight thousand. You know, in Iowa, we've got a community that um, you know sponsored an Afghan family. So it started out with like a, a, a small um, group sponsoring this Afghan family. They now have thirty families in the community, and again, they come from all political stripes. You know, nobody's asking about their politics. They're showing up to help. You know, they're showing up to help, and it's like, and and yes, it's all over the country. It's not just, you know, I mean, there are there are, um, you know, there are so many stereotypes about America that we could, you know, apply to this. And I'll tell you every single one of them, you know, <laughs> like has, um, has, has been proven wrong in this experience. Like we work in, we, we get to work in this space where, you know, we see not Americans and American institutions, right? Think about our iconic service institutions like Lions and Rotary Clubs, you know, amazing that they're doing this sponsorship work. We have, you know, 40 of the nation's largest companies and so many other like small and medium-sized companies that showed up for, you know, what they can do. And they showed up every time, you know, they've contributed over $240 million in goods and services. Our Welcome Connect platform, our platform that, um, uh, and what it is, you know, for your listeners is the place where um, people who are willing to sponsor can find refugees in need of sponsors. And it works, um, you know, it's a it's a it's a place where you know you post a profile about your family, why you want to do this. Refugees do the same, and you find each other. And what I love about it is refugees choose, right? So you have all these sponsors selling themselves. You know, <laughs> like that's amazing. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah. Refugees choose, but here's the crazy thing about it. Two, a couple of crazy things that tell you everything you need to know about our country. One, the platform was built for us in a, you know, it was built for us in a, it was um, in, a, in a collaboration with Goldman Sachs, ServiceNow, and Infosys. It was two engineers at Goldman Sachs, one of whom is a Ukrainian American refugee, the other of whom is a Russian-American refugee who's married to a Ukrainian. They were refugees resettled to the United States in the 90s. And, you know, they came to us and they're like, can we help you build this? Incredible. You know, like that's, and then that's who, again, I'm just going to come back to it. Like that's who we are. So we have this incredible platform that is allowing Americans, you know what I love about it is you know, you discover it's, I mean, it sounds trite to say, but you discover so much about what you have in common. So we, you know, you know, they're meeting these families and they were doing what we all do. They were living their lives. Their kids were going to school and, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, they're sending their kids to the bunkers because bombs are raining on their town. You can tell the story from, you know, Guatemala, all of a sudden the community that you knew well, it, you know, has devolved into this kind of strife that, you know, you can't walk the streets safely. I remember when I was at IRC looking at a heat map, different country, El Salvador, but looking, you know, also in the grips of tremendous like gang violence and civil strife. I'm looking at this heat map of of El Salvador and it looks exactly like a conflict map of Syria. You know, the lines of control and, you know, it's just everyday citizens trying to live their lives and raise their children and give them opportunities that are caught in this. So, but that's what sponsors are learning, you know, like, oh, I was a teacher. I was an engineer. I was a, you know, I was a caterer. You know, I had my own business. You know, my kids were going to school. All of this, like, entirely disrupted in a matter of, 
you know, weeks and sponsors are learning and they're making connections on the basis of being dog lovers, you know, on the basis of having kids the same age, on the basis of having, you know, similar, you know, similar career interests. Like there are so many different connections and that's the right word, connections that people are finding, you know, crossing global crises, global communities, you know, and I often describe it as, you know, our sponsors are also finding themselves, mm. you know, they're finding, they're doing this work and they're finding themselves, they're finding out what really matters in life, how precious it is, you know, what an extraordinary privilege it is to be an American and to live in safety and what an extraordinary opportunity is to be a lifeline for someone who needs that, to be the person that is making it possible for us to be a place of refuge for people who need it. Absolutely beautiful. And, and, and I think what's what needs to be pointed out as well is that if someone didn't know that Welcome.us was only a couple years old, they would mm-hmm. think that this is a 20-year-old organization, right? Or or longer, like IRC, you know, like these other organizations that have been around for a long time and have mm-hmm. built their mature and they've built a huge, you know, donor base and this partnerships and all that. No, this is a very, this is a baby organization. We're that 16 is, months old. That has accomplished tremendous things. And so what, what I'd love for a couple minutes for us to talk about, and you did a beautiful job over the past 15 minutes, like describing how things happen. And and, and you, 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 I'm so glad you spent most of that time talking about the sponsorship part of things, because a, that's something that's a, that's a real call to action for those listening right now. This is something you can do. Yes. Um, but let's talk for a minute about how this is taking shape in such a, um, for lack of a better term, bipartisan way, right? You describe the other co-founders as mm-hmm. ha- having worked in the Bush administration and the Biden administration couldn't be further from the, you know, they're very, very not alike. And then you look at the the co-chairs, right? You've got President uh, Jimmy and First Lady Carter. You have President and uh, Clint, uh, Bill and First Lady uh, Clinton and the Bushes and the Obamas, right? Again, these are very different administrations in how they yeah. worked, the policies, how, how everything went, right? So- you're obviously, again, you're, you're, this is not a, a left organization, a right organization. You're truly trying to forge this new path forward, which I, we could talk honestly about this, which we're not going to for another hour, hour and a half, because I'm, I'm also learning a ton in these days and weeks and months about how to properly do that. Because I also don't love, there are, there are some of these bridge building organizations, right? That I'm not a fan of, honestly, because I think they're, in the name of unity, they're ignoring some very vital, hey, we've got to have a hard, if we're going to work together on this thing, we got to have some hard conversations. One of my favorites that does it really well, my friends, it starts with us. Um, I've been doing a lot of stuff with them. I don't know if you know, starts with us, amazing organization. And I think they're doing the bridge building thing very well. So I'm just interested in, hey, if we're going to, I'll be very blunt, if we're going to keep uh, another 2016 to 2020 from happening again, We've got to get better about working with each other, but before working with each other, having some hard conversations about like, hey, we disagree on these things. We agree on these things. How are we going to work together? So how does that happen here in Welcome.us? Because again, you're, you're, you have people from all backgrounds, all political parties, all political affiliations. How are you approaching that as, and you are clearly, I will say this, you are the person to lead this. 
I have met with a lot of leaders doing a lot of different things. It's clear that you have the gift and the skill set to bring, because again, you are the daughter of refugees that is saying America is, America has all that we need to do these things. Um, and so, yeah, how does that work in your organization? How are you bringing all these different kinds of people together? Well, I, I think what's really um, incredible about it, Nick, is you know, just, just as you said, you'd think we were super established and we're 16 months old. And part of the reason you'd think we're super established is because of you know these extraordinary, you know, we have 800 partners who have you know put their hands up to help. And that spans, as I said, you know, our, our largest corporations to you know um, amazing community-based organizations that are doing this work in community, um, but the success, the success. Um, you, uh, your, your your listeners can't see me, but I'm putting my I'm putting I'm, I'm putting quotes. up the air quotes. <laughs> I'm putting up the air quotes. The success of that is all like all credit due to the American people. What I think is so interesting about what we've done at Welcome.us is we only created the pathways. Right, because it turns out our government systems are really hard to work with. Right, we all know this, even from doing something like getting a driver's license. Right, like our government bureaucracies are government bureaucracies. You know what I mean? And bless their hearts for the good they do and the problems that they're trying to solve. But if we rely only on our government systems, we are missing out on the tremendous generosity and compassion of the American people. You know, so up until 1980, private sponsorship was the way that refugees came to the United States. You know, it was individuals and community-based and faith-based organizations all over the country that, you know, um, that supported refugees globally to, you know, rebuild their lives here. That's how we did it for decades. And, you know, to another point that you raised, um, it had bipartisan support. It was a nonpartisan issue, right? Go back and listen to President Reagan's final speech in office. Right. He's talking about the experience of refugees, you know, um, coming to the United States, being that, you know, beacon of hope. Um, you know, the refugee resettlement program um, for years had higher admissions levels under Republican administrations than it did under Democratic administrations. Right. So this was not a place where Americans disagreed. We we and still, if you look at polling, right? If you look at polling, there's you know over 70% of Americans that think we should be a place of refuge. And that was actually an increase from 2016 when the number was at 61%. And that increase was driven by an 18 percentage point increase among Republicans, right? This is a nonpartisan issue. Being a place of refuge for people fleeing violence and persecution is something that we do. It's just gotten caught up in bureaucracies and caught up in politics. So truly, the thing that we did was just create the pathways. What's the pathway? What's the on-ramp? Sponsorship is an opportunity for you. Volunteering is an opportunity for you. And to your point about bridge building, we don't feel like we can do that bridge building from the top down, right? It's Americans who are doing that bridge building. I told you the story of the sponsor group that started with, you know, five families and is now 30, you know, in Hartsville, South Carolina, it's a community of 8,000. They welcomed one refugee family, word got out in the community. And first of all, like that family was like, 
overwhelmed with everything they could possibly need. But then they quickly welcomed, you know, other families in the same community of 8,000 welcomed four more families, right? And now they're setting up a local NGO so that they can be a community that sponsors refugees going into the future, right? Like the amazing. Um, the experience, amazing. Like, and this happened, we hear these stories all the time, like the experience of um, the wheelers that I started telling you about in Madison, Alabama, you know, they're a family with small children. They welcomed a Ukrainian family. They posted on Facebook about what they were doing and the contributions that they got from the community was enough to furnish an entire house for the refugee family that they sponsored. We're not doing that bridge building. Americans are doing it. We're just being a center of gravity for everyone who wants to help. We break down the barriers for people who want to help because again, like it's not easy to find the path, right? Our, our government systems aren't set up that way. But I mean, again, it's the U.S. government learning from the desires of Americans to help who have now made it possible for Americans to sponsor first Afghans, then Ukrainians, then Venezuelans, you know, now also Cubans and Haitians and Nicaraguans. And pretty soon here, you're going to see the State Department announce a program that allows Americans to sponsor refugees from crises all over the world. Like they are seeing the energy and compassion of Americans and they're they're creating ever more opportunities for Americans to participate. And what we want to do is just max it out. We know from a survey that we did with an organization called More in Common, right? Another bridge building organization, um, that there are 50 million Americans who would love to do welcoming work, who would love to be sponsors. We want to give an opportunity for every single one of those Americans to be a lifeline to safety for someone who needs it. What an incredible privilege to be that lifeline of safety. Can you imagine having that impact on someone's life? That's a generational impact. You're going to change everything for that family. The key thing that I got out of what you just shared is that what you are doing you and this incredible organization is you're creating a pathway. And that's what I have found is that's, that's my, I see that as what I'm going to spend time doing for the rest of my life. I'm going to spend yes. full time because I have found that people are so willing to help, so willing to pitch in, but they just don't know where to start. They don't know where to start. Yeah. One of the most common conversations I have when I talk to people, I'm actually going to, I'm actually going to start this thing where I'm going to go. I live in New York city. I'm going to go set up a table, a couple chairs, podcasting equipment all around the city. And I'm going to just have, invite people to sit down and talk with me, uh, record it. And basically the, the, the crux of the conversation is what do you give a damn about? And what do you, are, are you actually, are you actually doing that? Because so many times it's like, well, I want to do this, but I have no clue how to get started. And so those of us that have, uh, expertise, leadership abilities, uh, the ability to start organizations. And we should be spending most of our time creating pathways for the already tens, if not hundreds of millions of people that are ready to go. They just need a leader. They just need someone to say, here's the pathway. You care about uh, refugees and immigration? Great. You can become a sponsor. Oh, I can do that? Wait a second. I can become a sponsor? That's crazy. And then they sign up, as you all saw, to the tune of thousands and thousands of people. Communities in South Carolina, you just wouldn't think your average, you know, to put in air, I'm using air quotes now, coastal elite 
wouldn't think that a small community in South Carolina would be rallying around refugees. But we, but you just, you just proved all of us wrong by sharing that story. In that, our that, leading way. Yes. And so, yeah, you guys, you all are creating a pathway for hundreds of millions of Americans that want to do the work and just need to be shown how. And that's incredible. And it's all, well, thank you, Nick. I want to give credit right back to our American communities because so many of these groups are groups that are there. They're there. They're doing this work, right? We're, they are often unrecognized. Um, you know, they often aren't the groups that are receiving federal funding. You know, they're often not the groups that are receiving even state, state and local funding, right? Because they're small. They're doing good in their communities. They're making a huge impact in their communities, but they're so often not seen. And, you know, we just, we just want to tell that story. I mean, if we describe our, you know, our, our mission is to inspire and mobilize Americans to do welcoming work. I think in our experience, we've figured out that actually we don't need to do much in the inspiring and mobilizing place. We just, as you said, need to create the pathways, create the on-ramps, let people know where they can contribute, and they will blow right through every opportunity you provide for them. There are already 250,000 Americans that have submitted applications to sponsor, you know, so it is, you know, they just, they need to know where to go and they need to know who in their communities is already doing this great work and they are ready to serve. In light of what you just shared, as we wrap up here today, this has been a tremendous conversation. Um, I know you've mentioned URLs and programs throughout. Yes. Yes. Uh, Take a minute right now to give people your clear call to action for those that are really ready to go after hearing this conversation. Go to welcome.us and you will find an opportunity that's right for you. If it's sponsorship, that's incredible and we will support you. If that feels like a lot to take on right now, there are so many volunteer opportunities, community opportunities where you can make a contribution to welcoming in your community. And anything you do, I think people often think that, um, you know, doing welcoming work is the job of professionals, right? Because we've made it that way. It's become like a government program. Um, But again, I point to the history that this was done by communities for decades before it became a government programs. And then I will tell you that what we hear from newcomers is, yes, you know, I did, you know, leave everything behind, my home, my business, you know, any resources I had, I had to leave in in a moment to save my life and save my family's life. We hear that, but, and so what they want is what they need is definitely, you know, the basic goods, right? Like housing. And that's what sponsors do, right? Housing, you know, get, you know, get kids enrolled in school, you know, have employment facilitated, but what they want and what is so critical to their success and the success for any of us as humans, right? Is, you know, a new sense of belonging, a new community, in addition to leaving behind their homes and businesses, they've left behind their family, their friends, their social networks. Like Americans' ability to be just what we do really well, be a good neighbor, is so critical. So go to welcome.us and find out how you can be a great neighbor in your community. You can connect with newcomers. You can pave their way. You can make them feel like they have found their new place to be. You can help them put down roots. And it's 
an extraordinary experience for everyone. Well, you have um, given me hope, really. I mean, I, I mean that I have, I don't know how to measure hope in one's body, but I have more of it for the work that we're all trying to do in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. I have, because I grew up overseas and have a lot of experience, I have years and years living outside the U.S., uh, both in wealthy countries and poor countries alike. And I've thought many times for the good of my, you know, I have three kids in, in school. I, every day when they go off to school, I say a prayer over them as they leave because with school shootings and things like that, like th there are just other places in the world where you don't have to worry about some of the things we do have to worry about, right? But I have tried multiple times, I mean it, to, we have begun the process of uh, moving to another country. Uh, we have begun the process to move to the Netherlands, to Vienna, to other places that I've spent a lot of time in and I love and they're great for families and they're this and they're that. But something keeps bring, something keeps me from going beyond the initial steps. Yep. And I think it is, again, those countries are amazing and I'll continue to go to them as many times as I can. And who knows, maybe we move someday. But right now, I keep coming back to this. I keep having people strategically placed in my life at different times that have brought me back and said, yo, go, fine, that's great. I have many expat friends that are amazing and they're raising their family in amazing countries. But I think those of us that are frustrated enough with what's happening here, many of us should stay for the fight, for yeah. the hard journey ahead. Because every country, every place in the history of ever that has done great things, it took people living and dying in that place Mm -hmm. to do the hard work, to have the hard conversation, mm -hmm. to spend decades uh, uh, slowly but surely convincing people that this and that are the right thing to do. So let's do that. How do we do that? Building pathways. And so I've, 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 um, yeah, I have found hope through our conversation. And I know you said that there are like 800 organizations that have joined up to help make this work happen. I don't know what the criteria is, but if let's give a damn can be the 801st we're in. Um, <laughs> and, and any way that we can help, because again, as a child of refugees uh, or a refugee, rather my father, like I, I've always, you know, we focus a lot on climate issues on the podcast, but it's very much where we're, I'm actually thinking about starting a separate climate project so that the, the, the let's give a damn main podcast and main platform doesn't become overly that because I care about so many things and I want to continue bringing light to so many different kinds of issues. Um, so yeah. I'm so glad you're staying with us, Nick. Yes. Stay for the possibility of us. Stay and do this really good work that you're doing. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to bring this message to all your listeners. I loved your charge to them. Yes. Every single one of you come and be a sponsor. You know, <laughs> like, I'm so grateful for the platform you're giving not just to organizations like ours, but to everyday Americans to hear about how they can contribute and give a damn. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And thanks for making us a part of it. I love it. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll do it again soon, I hope. Friends, thank you so much for showing up and for spending time with Nazanin and me this week, our very first podcast of 2023. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation, and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please, please, please share this episode with a friend or two. Please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And please, most of all, show up next week. 
We have many more incredible conversations coming your way next week, next month, next year. We've got so many more to bring your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins-Harn, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda, and you can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.